All right, so I would like all married couples to stand, please. All married couples, would you stand, please? All right, so for those of you who have been married five years or less, would you please sit down? Ten years or less? Twenty years or less? Thirty years or less? Forty or less? 50 years or less. Okay, all right. (laughs) Isn't that funny? They're all like, you made it. (laughs) Dean, how long? Okay. Dean, sit down. Steve? Oh, now you have to that. 57 years. Have a treat at Sweeties and Biker and the Baker. I mean, you, you made it 57 years. We can at least give you some food. All right, I can tell you right now, this ain't going to work the whole time. Because I move, and so, you know, that's just going to be too hot. All right. Well, here we are. For those of you who don't know, this is the day that Pastor George and Julie have been waiting for, planning for, preparing for, thought maybe never would arrive. For those of you who don't know, after the second service today, there's going to be a marriage ceremony where Pastor George and Julie will become husband and wife. It is, yes. <laughs> It is a moment where we, as their church family and their families gathered around them, it's a time that we could not be more happy or more thrilled for them. But that's not to say that there isn't someone more thrilled than all of us put together, more filled with joy than any of us are here today. And of course, I'm speaking about our great God because he is the most important witness and actor that will be here today when it comes to marriage. You could say that God is a huge fan of marriage because after all, he is the one who designed it and created it and set it in place when he created all other things in the world and universe. So it is that today, at about 12.15, he will look down with love, warmth, affection, joy, and passion, eager to begin the profound and mysterious work of making one man and one woman. Okay, see, the problem with wedding ceremonies is that you've been to so many of them, you forget the astounding nature of what is happening, what is about to begin to happen at a wedding ceremony, that God is taking a man and a woman and is making them literally one flesh. That's amazing. It's just absolutely remarkable if you think about it, even for a couple of minutes. And given how important God thinks marriage is, and as we were planning for a wedding ceremony to happen on Sunday immediately after this morning service anyway, it struck me that it would be a good opportunity to take a little time out from Romans and to think a bit more about marriage 
and more importantly, to think about what God thinks about it. You see, the Bible tells us that, now unfortunately, here's something I have to say, because marriage is under a tremendous amount of assault in our day, has been for a good decade. I mean, really coming hard after it for a good decade now. So we have to say that it's between one biological man and one biological woman becoming one flesh. That's what we call marriage. It's what all the rest of creation was and always has been about. Let's start at the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the Bible describes the process by which all the rest of our planet and the entire cosmos came into being after that sentence. And I wonder if you've ever noticed this fascinating detail in the, in the creation account is the binaries within the creation account. The pairs that he brings about. Heaven and earth, sun and moon, light and dark, seas and dry land, and so on. It's all about God making complementary pairs which are meant to work together. And after each of those creative bursts all the way up to creating man himself, God stands back as it were, right? And what does he declare about it? It's good. Which makes God's statement in Genesis chapter 2 verse 18 so utterly shocking. You see, after God has placed Adam in his perfect garden, Eden, commanding him to work it and keep it and have dominion over all of it, something strikes God. Verse 15, chapter 2. Yahweh God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then Yahweh God said, it is not good. Wait, wait a second. I thought it was all good. Well, he notices something that is not good. It is not good for the man to be alone. And every man said, You see why I'm doing a sermon on marriage? Good night. It is not good for the man to be alone. That's slightly better, but I think the women are still really disappointed. So I will make a helper corresponding to him. In the midst of Eden, rich in resources and splendid in potential and a paradise like none ever known, because there had been none ever known, unstayed, unstained or marred by evil or death in any way, God puts his finger on something wrong. And he declares, not good. Never seen that before. I love what Ray Ortland says about God here. How could God feel otherwise? Love is God's nature. It is a fundamental characterization of his Trinitarian being. The Bible helps us see that we live in a universe where ultimate reality is relational. For this man to be alone in a world created and ruled by a God who is love, the very fact that it is a perfect world makes his aloneness unthinkable. And so therefore God says, 
I will make a helper for him. And I love what God does next. (laughs) This is so good, you guys, because he has noticed Adam's aloneness before Adam notices his aloneness. Funny that, you know, men have always been short on the uptake, right? Like, (laughs) so God then does something to make Adam feel his aloneness. What does he do? Do you remember the story? He parades all the other creatures that he had formed out of the ground of the earth before him in pairs, binaries, Adam carefully recognizing, studying, and naming each of them. And when that task is complete, the Bible tells us, but for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. And there it is. Adam now feels his aloneness. And he is ready to receive the greatest gift under God he will ever receive greater than all the rest of creation itself. Okay, husbands, you should hold her hand right now. Put your arm around her. This is one of those moments where you're like, oh, sweetie, you're just like the greatest gift ever. And mean it. And then the story, as if it weren't beautiful enough, increases in beauty. We read the story in Genesis and we, we can imagine God saying son to his son, right? He's a father. Okay, I want, I want you to lay down now. I want you to lay down and I'm going to put you to sleep. And when you wake up, you're going to have the greatest friend that you could ever imagine. And so he puts the man to sleep. And the father touches the son. And he takes one of his ribs and he closes up the place and he immediately heals it because she will not be made. Isn't this amazing? She will not be made from the ground like everything else that has been made, right? Genesis says everything sprung up from the ground. He took the dust of the earth and formed the man. But how does he form the woman? Out of man. God increasing the very bone of the man to make woman. And there she stands in all her beauty and glory, pure and lovely and dear to God who has now made a daughter. And then the father bends down. Can you see it? Like there she's standing over there and he's still out cold right here. And he touches the man. Can you keep... Wake up. What do you think? And just like the father of the bride is going to do later in a ceremony today, what does God do? Do you see? Listen to the echoes. God brought her to the man. And for the man, it was love at first sight. Right? How couldn't it be? They were naked and unashamed after all. I'm just telling you the story. The Bible begins with a love story. And here now, the romantic response of the first husband, the relief clear in his declaration. This one at last 
is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, right? He's named every other creature. Oh my goodness, look at her. Woman. She was taken from the man. And with that one act of stunning creation, God has turned the not good of Genesis 2.18 into the very good. Boy meets girl. The only incomplete pair in creation is now made complete. Which means that creation is now complete. For this is what God has had in mind all along, Genesis 2.24. This is why a man leaves or, or literally abandons his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. So there is what marriage is in Genesis 2.24. It is one man bonding with one woman becoming one flesh. And in Genesis, we see what marriage is for. God creates the cosmos and our world and sets the married couple within it and commands them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, Genesis 1.28. Expand Eden, expand the garden, expand the joy and fellowship and bliss, expand and increase humanity, develop successful human cultures and leave a mark on the world for the glory of God, all under the smile of God's blessing. And they lived happily ever after. Uh-oh. Would that it were so. Unfortunately, there is an evil and dark force in our story. A villain who, who feels no joy. He's there. This beautiful picture that we just saw, he feels no joy in that. He sees no beauty. He utters no approval. He does not want God's kingdom to expand, but desires to place a beachhead for himself and his kingdom, a way for him to rule the creation that God has made. And because he so clearly understands marriage, don't miss this, he sees what's happening. Because he sees that it is central to God's creative and kingdom work, he attacks marriage. You see, the Satan knows that if he can shatter the foundation, the rest will crumble. So he, he plants disbelief. He undermines God's design. He whispers lies to the woman in the presence of the man. The man doing nothing, not leading. It was the wife acting as the head, but not a wise head, and the husband acting as a helper, but not a wise helper. It was the breakdown of marriage that broke everything. The greatest glory in the universe becomes the greatest tragedy in the world. And from that moment in the story of the Bible, we see the implications of sin and Satan, through the breakdown of marriage, breaking everything. Breaking everything in families and cultures and nations and kingdoms as they groan under the curse. From Genesis 3 all the way to Malachi 4, the entire Old Testament history of humanity. But lingering, always in the background, 
And sometimes in the foreground of that centuries-long story of humanity is the God-promised joy to the world, the offspring of the woman who would make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, as the old Christmas song says. The one who would bruise the head of the serpent, the one who would continue to define God's plan for the world through the language and reality of marriage found in Genesis 2.24. It's right there at the beginning. Always lingering, Sometimes in the background, sometimes in the foreground. And so now we're going to really move as I take you through the New Testament, and I want to show you why marriage and your marriage here today is so central to the plan of God, both today and forever. Existing marriage, and if you're single here today, do not tap out. Because this is what, if God would have marriage for you, what your marriage could be in what your marriage is meant for. Or this is how you can support other marriages or speak the truth of what marriage is, is by knowing it. So don't tap out if you're single. First, we learn in the writings of Paul that Satan is still working to destroy marriage in 1 Timothy 4 because he knows that every successful marriage whispers his sure and certain doom and proclaims Christ's triumph. And one of his key tactics to do that is the destructive device of divorce. And it isn't dealing with this anti-marriage device of Satan that Jesus both affirms the ongoing reality of Genesis 2.24 as the definition of marriage while unpacking the power of God within marriage to expand his kingdom. So when Jesus is asked about the legality of divorce by a group of Pharisees, he says this. Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning, so what does he do? He goes all the way back to Genesis 1. He who created them in the beginning made them male and female. Haven't you read that? And he also said, now quoting Genesis 2.24, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Haven't you read that? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And now Jesus draws a conclusion. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Maybe when you've heard those words in a wedding ceremony, you didn't know that they were uttered by Jesus himself. You see, in the face of the demonic defacing of the glory of marriage, Jesus declares the ongoing significance and power of the Genesis design. Jesus is showing us that it is true not only, listen to this, it is true not only that God was present when he joined Adam and Eve together as one flesh, it is true not only that God is present in the institution of marriage in general, but it is also true that God is present in every lawful marriage in particular. He is showing us how grand every single marriage is. Christian or not, unbeliever, believers, this is a creational design. Every marriage is glorious in God's sight. Every marriage, God is working within. And that is what we are going to declare as true in a new marriage that is going to be instituted by God in a ceremony later today. And it is also true in every marriage in this room today. That's true even if you are disappointed in your marriage.
even if you are in the middle of an imperfect marriage and you are feeling the imperfections of your marriage, God is present there. Ray Ortland again. Your imperfect marriage in the world today is as sacred in the sight of God as was the perfect marriage between Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Your marriage is grace from above. Your marriage is a miracle. Your marriage came to you with the touch of God upon it, and it is and remains dear to him. Your marriage has the potential by his grace to bring redemption into the world we all live in now. (laughs) Okay, I should say that again. Your marriage has the potential by the grace of God to bring redemption into the world we all live in now. Your imperfect marriage has the power to do that. And so therefore, your marriage... Even your disappointing or imperfect marriage is worth celebrating. We all had to have a better idea of anniversaries and party more. I've never been really good at celebrating. This confronts me and makes me think, I should be celebrating more my marriage. I should be celebrating she said I do and still does. Jesus thought it was worth celebrating your marriage. He thinks so right now. And so did the great apostle Paul of Tarsus. You see, Paul, by the power of the Spirit, as a disciple of Jesus, recognized the glory and profundity of the miracle of marriage. And he understood that every single marriage, no matter how imperfect, was actually a metaphor for the far greater and ultimate marriage towards which the entire biblical love story is headed. He reveals this in his famous teaching on marriage found in his letter to the Ephesian church. He's unpacking the role of a, of a husband and a wife, and he writes this. Listen now, be reminded. This is a text all husbands and wives should put to memory. Husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it just as the Messiah does for the church since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two will become one flesh. There's Genesis 2.24 again. Do you see the ongoing significance? This mystery... Paul says, is profound. But I am talking about Messiah and the church. So what is Paul doing? He is passionately inviting us to remember the profoundness of marriage. Too often today, we see marriage as common. We just see it as ordinary. We don't treat it as, as profound, right? Like, you don't see a lot of people kind of walking around and like, oh, wow. Hey, everybody, look, look. It's a marriage. (laughs) Look, a husband and a wife. Can you? Yeah, you just think like, that's really weird. (laughs) But wouldn't that be cool if like I ran up to you guys like in Safeway and did that? (laughs) I don't 
Oh, you don't think that would be very, yeah. Maybe it wouldn't. Maybe they'd call security. I don't know. My point is maybe if we saw marriage as profound as Jesus and Paul see marriage, maybe we would be moved to do that every once in a while. We'd be amazed. We'd wake up next to her again and think, I just can't, I just can't believe it. I just can't believe I get to do this. I, that I get to be a husband. I just, this is profound. This is a miracle. God's hand is upon us today. God is literally taking me and making me one with her. And he's doing that as the pinnacle of his creation and the vehicle of his kingdom expansion. That I'm meant to see the glory of God in my marriage, to see the miracle that is happening in my marriage. We are meant to strip away the calluses on our eyes and to see the profundity of marriage. And to see the potential in marriage. Do you see what Paul is doing? He's grabbing Genesis 2.24 and he's shoving us right back to the beginning of the story. And he's saying that what happened there in Eden begins in every wedding ceremony. The same miracle that God was doing there is the miracle that he will do through your marriage. What Paul is saying is that our marriages, as we make our way around Salida and in this valley, we are to be creating in our homes and in our relationship little pockets of the kingdom of God. Right? Isn't that what he's saying? This is where you say yes or no out loud. Okay, I just, you know, want to make sure you're seeing that because I think that's amazing. We should see these little kingdom outposts that are cropping up in our marriages, in our homes. And when then we are meant to expand the kingdom through them one family at a time, literally changing the world. That's the potential of your marriage. (laughs) That's amazing. And then Paul takes that vision and that reality and he launches from it into the super reality that it represents. The breathtaking and ultimate marriage that is coming and toward which the entirety of the biblical story is Headed, he says it in verse 32. I am saying that this relates to Messiah and the church. It points to the marriage between Jesus and his church. Well, what does that mean? Have you ever asked that? What does that mean? Does it mean that my marriage is so profound that it points to the marriage between Jesus and the church? And what is the marriage between Jesus and the church? Many of us received this notice in our email inboxes. Maybe we printed it off and slapped it on the refrigerator as, as we do often with these things. We, we call it a save the date card or notice. And the very first words that you see there are what? You are invited. It tells us there will be a wedding on a certain date. It names the groom and the bride. It describes a reception that will follow. And everyone who owns a Bible holds in their possession an announcement with the same qualities toward which all of this points. It is an announcement. This book is an announcement that completes what Paul was on about. The very end of the book in the Revelation, John's Revelation, the the closest man to Jesus at his time on the earth, while we don't know the exact date, on the calendar, John's Revelation functions as a save-the-date card. It promises that a day is coming 
Revelation 19. And I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory because what? The marriage of the Lamb has come and his what? Bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure. For the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are, what? Invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Isn't that fantastic? The ceremony that we will all enjoy later today and anytime we are part of a marriage ceremony, everything about it, the invitations, the buildup, the expectations, the marriage of groom and bride, the reception that follows in which we eat and drink and dance, even if you're Baptist, it's all meant to be a mere pointer to and foretaste of eternity. Right here, right now reminds us that one day we will stand with our great bridegroom. If, if, we believe in Jesus as Savior and King. If we believe in Jesus as the solution to the curse of Genesis 3. And maybe you don't believe in Jesus this morning. But right now, this church opens wider arms with an invitation for you to save the date and not stand before Jesus and be judged and cast into an eternity without him, but to bend the knee in worship of him as your king. And all you have to do is say, is just come to him with empty hands of faith and say, I believe in you. I want to be at the party. <laughs> I want to be at the reception. I want to be at the feast. I don't want to be cast out where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth in the darkness and the gloom to be separated from you forever. I want in the party. That's all you have to do is accept the invitation. And stand with the rest of us as his bride. And he will take us as his own. Having made us pure and righteous through our declaration of belief. And then we will enter into the most grand and spectacular reception that has ever been. And then there will be a honeymoon. <laughs> Maybe you didn't think about it that way before. But there will be. There will be a honeymoon. What's a honeymoon? It's a destination that you go to after the wedding. Right? And what is the destination? Well, as good as Jamaica is going to be for George and Julie, the Apostle Paul's vision describes us to a far better honeymoon. Then I saw, Revelation 21, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride. <laughs> Marriage is there from beginning to the very end. The whole story of the Bible is a story of marriage prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them and they will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God and he will wipe every tear from their eyes and death will be no more and grief and crying and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne, Jesus said, look, I am making everything new. Oh man. Do you have goosebumps? I have goosebumps. That's what 
That's what today is all about. This. Is that not breathtaking? Is this not encouraging? Your marriage, my marriage, my imperfect, I don't have a perfect marriage. You want to find out about that? Ask Susan. She's in the back. You can talk to her. Do not have a perfect marriage, and most of its imperfections fall on me as the leader of our home. But my marriage, and every marriage here, is so that, listen, your marriage is not primarily to make you happy. It does that, and it's designed for, that's in the design, but it's not the primary design of your marriage. Your marriage is so that people who don't know Jesus can receive through us in our marriages an invitation to the marriage of the Lamb and His bride with an expectation-shattering party afterwards and an eternal honeymoon with the Son of God to follow. Worship team, would you come up? And do you know what all of that does? It infuses eternal significance into the ceremony that is going to happen later today. It means that we should be on the edge of our seats in every wedding ceremony because that's where God is. On the edge of his seat, as it were. He cannot wait to make George and Julie one flesh. He's so excited about that. Why? Because it brings his son glory. And it expands his kingdom. And it saves unbelievers. That's what marriage does. Because he does that work in our marriages. He does, you guys, by the power of his Holy Spirit. I don't even have to gin up all my strength to do that. God's going to do that work through our marriages. So I guess I was wrong. I guess we do live happily ever after. Both the Spirit and the bride say come. Let anyone who hears say come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires the water of life freely. He who testifies about these things says yes. I am coming soon. And all his people said, Oh, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen.